That's your job? That's what I'm doing right now. I'm being a settler. How are you being a settler? Because I have like the nicest job. <laughs> That's not to say that there's no non-white people on it, but it is certainly true that like... You're going into like uh, parts of California and squatting on some land that was given yeah. to like a general and... No, just parts of Brooklyn. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> You're not Gen- talking to the mic. Gentrification is settlerism, too. Yeah, I should know that. Eh? <laughs> So uh, I set that mic up for you. Is that going to be all right for you? I'm gonna. You're gonna take the stand up thing, and I'm gonna lay here like this because I. Between are we recording? Yep. Between trying to find. Uh, started just now. Okay. We Between didn't catch the trying to find an apartment, which is a miserable enterprise in this fucking city. Between trying to have something of like a social life and going to see the sublation event on Friday night with Ross and Alex. You can call that a life. It's something that approximates a life. <laughs> and then uh, trying to get some like rest and relaxation on a Saturday uh, when work has just like wiped me out. I don't have the ability to go to see Ian Savonius tonight, unfortunately. But I'm glad you guys do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little different for me because I, I, I never get the opportunity to do things like this for the most part in Belgium. Because we oh, have of a, course. Yeah, we have a kid, and so I'm up every day when he... Basically, when he wakes up, you're the stay-at-home dad, right? Well, that's shifted. Both of us are kind of working full time, but oh, okay. I, I generally, um, because my work's flexible, I can work nights and you know work even on weekends. I I, I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then um, you know, and then we kind of split the weekend up. But you know, I come here and we have his his grandmother. Oh right, yeah, so, in the city, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so great. So I so I get to do things like uh, you know go go see. Punk shows. Yeah, it wants to show me the body and catharsis. And yeah, well, you were seeing So Rabamari and Catron. <laughs> we were seeing Show Me the Body cover Sabotage. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, dope. I think we won out on that I one. I think you won yeah, on that one. Good. It was a shit show, the event that I went to. It was, it was interesting, and shout out to Douglas Lane and uh, all those folks for doing it, but I definitely sat in like a classroom at Columbia University and listened to like political theorists drone on while you guys were like shaking your fists in the air and uh-huh. opening up the pit. So you win. No, I Thank watch you. that when I, I watch stuff like that on, on like YouTube when I'm, when I'm supposed to be like, uh, you know, working, right. Ed- yeah. Editing video or whatever. Yeah. It was, I've been to a lot of shows lately though. We've just been choosing, we've been doing something I haven't done in like over a decade, which is just like opening up a website and being like, what are the punk shows happening this weekend? And just like choosing one and going to it. And, we've and that website awesome is fans. Oh My Rockness. Yes. And if you look at it for September 10th, uh-huh. there's a show coming up at Littlefield. Ah. You might think it's like a thrash metal show or something <laughs> from the flyer, from but the flyer. It's, <laughs> it's Minion Death Cult, Antifada, and Pod Damn America. Pod Damn America. At Littlefield, tickets are available now. You can get those in our show notes. There's, you can buy the ticket, and I'll see you. We'll, we will see you there, dude. A it's motherfucking a live, live, live show, show for the first time in like four years since 2019. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. actually went to a True Anon uh, live show in, in San Francisco, and it was a uh, fun. It was, you know, it was True Anon. It was, it was, it was funny, interesting, interesting. Was, <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was a fake gun like brandished toward the end, mm, oh, and uh, we were we were the wall style. <laughs> yeah, we were warned at the beginning, like don't don't. It's not a real gun. Yeah, don't oh. shoot back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't brandish. Yeah, Brando, this was, this don't brandish. This was a few years ago, um, but yeah, it was a simpler time when one could pull out a gun on stage. Yeah, it was pre pre COVID, but. 
I don't know. People have been brandishing guns in public for quite a... I mean, that's been a good ongoing trend. For yeah, because you, you live in now. Oakland and Belgium. Belgium, not so much brandishing guns all no, the time. No, but no, you're no. also from, like, North Carolina, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're, yeah. you're no stranger to that yeah. shit. Got, before we go too much further, we'd like to welcome back to the podcast for maybe your third time? Second, so second, second time. So Only second time. time. Sophomore uh, appearance. Brandon Jordan, uh, old friend of ours who mm-hmm. is passing through town, uh, the purveyor of uh, Global Uprisings, uh, mm-hmm. a documentarian of social struggles across the United States and Europe and the Middle East and everywhere. Kind of a, uh, a man who documents various revolts and insurrections as you see them because you manage to end up in the right place at the right time or wrong time, depending on Including how you look at it. Gazi Park in Istanbul, for example. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah. You probably told that last time, though. Yeah, probably. But also, you were in a Seattle 99, so you've been doing this for a while, right? I wasn't in Seattle. Oh, okay. I was, I was at the tail Fake end of that. Uh, actually, no, I mean, actually, at that time, it was, it was, uh, I was, I, I read about Seattle and it was going to happen because then I was like, uh, you know, like in deep into the punk scene and, and people still read maximum rock and roll. And I remember reading, getting my, my, uh, my build up to Seattle from MRR, MRR, but then out of Seattle, the independent media center was born. Yeah. And, uh, and actually that's how I started documenting things. I helped start an independent media center in North Carolina mm. and, um, indie media was huge back then. That yeah, was a yeah. real linkage for like so many people. Web, I, remember. I mean, to, to a certain extent, like web 2.0 was born out of indie media. The idea of like, uh, open publishing, things like that came out of that. And, um, and so we started one, and actually, it was kind of like being in a small town, um, well, smallish town, college town, Chapel Hill. Um, if you were like an anarchist or a communist in a place like that, you know, you know, if you're in a big city, you kind of like have your shtick, and that's what you do, you know. Yeah. But when you're in a small, um, small scene, you kind of do, you know, everything. So you may like organize like an action, like a direct action or a, a protest or something that gets crazy, and then you'll go and you'll write a story about it and publish it online, or you may like you know, shoot video and you're, you're kind of doing like everything there. So with any media, we kind of, we, we did that. And I started actually shooting. Um, I hate to say this and I hate to stop you, but it's the year 2023 and there's no guarantee that half the listeners know what indie media is. Um, indie media was a, was a global collective. Well, it was a global network of collectives um, that published independent news and they kind of, uh, you know, used direct democratic decision processes. We had like a, uh, um, I guess we had like a, a principles of unity, um, and uh, you know, but it was it was very on, early on use of like uh, open publishing technology. Very early on, we saw the problems of that. Like yeah. we had to like start moderating the newswire, kicking Nazis off, sure. looking for like uh, you know just conspiracy theories and nutcases. North Carolina, we had a lot of the far right. Oh, really? Um, you know, and it also sort of worked a little bit with anti-racist action. So it didn't really want a bunch of Nazis, you know, provide a platform. So we had to, you know, deep platform. And then, um, you know, I, that's how I started doing video. And then I moved to New York and yeah. uh, worked with the independent media center uh, here. And I mean, there's still like, you know, remnants of that. With, Is that where with, we met back in the late 2000s? Here I don't in, think so. I think we, we met, met more or less through the occupations movement, okay. student occupations movement. Yeah. yeah. I think, and then, you know, we got to know each other. There was also the world cup. We got, we drank a lot <laughs> during that. And, but yeah, and more or less, I think through the, the new school and all those things. And then we saw, saw you in Europe a couple of times when yeah. we passed through the various different. Yeah. Things, yeah. I, I I, we hung out in, I know we hung out in Amsterdam. Didn't we hang out in Paris too? 
No, am I, I don't making think that so. up? Marseille or no? No, I don't think so. You weren't there either. Yeah, but any this me- is all a blur. Yeah, any media like there's still I guess some active IMCs, but more or less it sort of uh, fizzled out in most places after the kind of fall of the uh, uh, anti globalization movement. And that, which kind that of morphed- internet kind of fizzled out too, right? Yeah, like- and that kind of morphed and that kind of and it kind of shifted to kind of like anti war politics. And I think you know some places did keep it going for a while but out of that there were a lot of stuff that came out that was kind of weird you know like uh, twitter more or less came from any media like evan uh the person he basically came up with this thing called uh um what was it smart smart mob or do you remember that so i, I don't know what you're talking about sorry so there was this so there was this the there was this basically this thing set up for the republican national convention protest in 2004 oh that which was, was the big one yeah so you could sign up for like a uh, this is when you had like before you had kind of smartphones but you could sign up for this sort of a these t- text mob is what it was called text mob so text mob you would you would sign up and then you would get updates like short text like Things that were basically like sixty characters, mainly telling you what police were doing or, yeah. or this or that. That was like pre-Twitter. Like Twitter sort of replaced it was pre-Twitter. That. Well, the person that helped start that was actually from any media. Ended up actually <laughs> hired Jack. No ended shit. up selling. Oh, shit. Ended what? up selling this this software. I mean this this sort of stuff, and that that's what became Twitter. Because when Twitter started, you would text your tweet into Twitter. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I do. So, yeah. so this stuff, so this, so it did the this. anarchist roots of Twitter.com, no, now X.com. There's actually there actually is an article if you Google it about that. But anyway, you know the the whole thing. I mean that's a, that was the whole issue of just like thinking of you know be the media or yeah. you know just become think, the media just, just think participationism is like a, a like a, 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 a in political goal in itself because yeah. a lot of people can participate as we found out like uh, well, i don't i don't op- know if you've heard like looked at x lately or whatever oh unfortunately i still do sometimes and it's a fucking shit show but the occupy movement is sort of like the bookend of the whole it seemed like an instantiation of the politics of like the 80s, yeah, yeah. 90s, and 2000s. But as we look back on it, it's kind of the bookend of an entire era where like voluntaristic, like mm-hmm. horizontal participationism, yeah, yeah. It, it was seen as like this emergent order that was going to like replace, is going to work through the fractures and fissures of capital and the state and like re- overgrow and replace it. And now that, that seems like a, a crazy con- conception, but it, that was, that was the politics of that era. Yeah. Right? I think, I think really, I mean, for me, indie media, my involvement of it, you know, I kind of left because I didn't like, there was more or less kind of like open collectives, which mm. allowed like anybody, like, and a lot of people kind of use it as kind of like therapy. You know, they would kind of yeah. show up and they would be like, this was like the thing that they did. And there was personal beef on it too, because yeah, I remember yeah. like a lot of like firing off communiques, announcing, you know, yeah, but for me, it was like uh, it was more about trying to find people that I could work with and and kind of form like you know stuff that I had more and in, in t- you know um, in common with politically and also personally could get along with. Well, and it trained you to become like a communist journalist, essentially. So yeah, and also I mean, also it's I won't deny that it was like you know you also you know now I try to actually get a little bit of money to do things. Oh like, man. And it was like, out, dude. yeah, but I mean, it's, Which we forgot to mention you work for the real news. Well, I'm a, a I'm fine a, website. So, yeah. so I'm a, I'm a freelancer with them. And, uh, my recent work with the real news came from, um, a guy named Che, who's a great guy. Um, we had met through global uprisings, uh, conference. So it was a global uprisings conference in 2013 where he invited people from over a dozen countries. And, uh, I think we paid for about 70 or 90 people to come who were directly involved in 
from the Arab Spring to right, like yeah. the Greek kind of insurrections, anti austerity stuff in Europe, Occupy, Gezi Park. And um, this guy, Che, actually came there too. And uh, um, we had a few bigger names too, besides this activist. There was uh, Paul Maddock was there, yeah. um, uh, David, the late David Graeber. Oh, you right, know, yeah. um, And then, you know, also you know, academics and people that were some somewhat, at least some had, had some connection to stuff that was happening then. But Che came and he liked the stuff we were doing with Global Uprisings and they got a Bertha Foundation grant, which was basically to do like labor reporting. Mm. So he asked, you know, if you, you still do this type of Global Uprisings thing, are you interested in it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the, recently I'd, I'd been doing a lot of... Um, work for money. I have a kid. And, um, so I was doing uh frequent stuff for like internet companies and stuff like that. No, no shame. And it was actually the stuff I was doing wasn't even so bad. Yeah. Uh, it's like privacy technology, stuff like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, he came to me and I, I think around that time they were trying to mainly cover stuff around the kind of, uh, the cost of living, um, mm. like, like, uh, strikes that were happening. So if people who aren't familiar, so really in, Late winter and the early spring, there was a strike wave that happened um, in Europe. In Europe, a lot of a huge amount of uh, strikes. You know, in the UK. Yeah, yeah, we were um, seeing that over here. Uh, but also in the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Germany, and uh, initially that was uh, that was what I covered. I covered a strike in Belgium, and it was really that one was really about energy prices. So energy prices uh, went up drastically i mean of course there's inflation there was also inflation in the united states and that's been the, the case since covid um and so you had this inflation but with extreme like energy costs like yeah because this is the ukraine yeah and so so the ukraine like like for so i live in belgium i live in a, a town called ghent mm. and Treaty um, of ghent we've all heard it shout out to ghent yeah ghent also uh clr james wrote a little bit about ghent and oh, some really? early like uh, class struggle with well pre-capitalist well, kind I mean, of class Bel struggle belgium with, is uh, like the, is one of the homelands of the class struggle right like an early industrializer yeah. and an earlier an early like socialist working class organizing country yeah 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 so Anyway, now deindustrialized. So, mostly. so most, so actually, most of Flanders is very right wing, um, you know, and and you've you've had a lot of uh, uh, growth to support the the NVA, the, the, I want to say the NVA, but the mm. N, NVA. Let me just try to say it in American. <laughs> um, you can retranslate things back yeah, they, into American now that you're back in the yeah, states. Yeah, so they're they they're the biggest party there, and they want to. Um, basically for Belgium to become a confederation. It's already sort of like, there's already autonomy for, um, for Flanders, but they basically so they just, want the Walloon. They want Walloon. They, they don't like the Walloons. They, they, they really hate the Walloons. It's crazy. Dude, your whole nation is about this, like weirdly putting together. There's like Walloons six parliaments and, in Belgium, right? Like autonomous regions, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's really, it's actually to live there. It's, it's because I live in the Netherlands before that. And the Netherlands is, is actually, you, you're frustrated because it's so functional that it's boring. Yeah. Yeah, you know? okay. like it's very socially normative people really trust like the, the it's a state, high trust society as the right wing likes to talk about but belgium is dysfunctional and part of it's just because of this uh you know the 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 way that the structures work and uh so it's kind of reproduced in everyday life but against a little bit more um progressive in other towns wasn't belgium like the equivalent in the 18th 19th century of what the united states is doing with taiwan like making it like a uh, a bulwark for its international power but instead of the united states it was great britain 
Wasn't it like a dagger straight at the heart of like Dutch and French capital? <laughs> well, you might know a little bit more about that. I can, I can talk about I can talk about the present context. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so in Belgium, it wasn't like Germany. Germany, you know, was receiving like like energy directly supplied from mm. like Russian you know, energy companies, but the, 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 it's sort of like, uh, people started preemptively raising energy costs. So there was a strike wave and I initially covered Belgium, but it, the Belgian context is a little different than, than France. So in Belgium, the large unions, um, everybody, a lot of people get their, um, healthcare insurance directly through the unions. Oh, okay. And, um, it's actually one of the most unionized countries within Western Europe, oh. way more unionization than, than France. And, um, you know, and, and France actually has seen this, this union numbers like in steady decline. Yeah, for France has an entirely different uh, yeah. union structure where minority unionism is a big thing. And there's, yeah. you can have like 5 to 10% of a workplace be union, but they have the power to strike. And typically like the rest of the workers go along with it. But there's larger than that on like a very French deregist sort of like mm -hmm. uh, state led level, like sectoral bargaining that takes place like outside and within the union structure, as I understand it, unlike the United States where things happen, like in this juridical sort of legal mm -hmm. court system of the NLRB in France, it's very much more like a, a state directed sort of cooperative or corporatist, right? Like uh, structure between labor and capital. Yeah, and I mean, so, and then other places, like, just on participation numbers, like, the, the decline in unions, things like that, just just talking, just sticking to this subject. So, the UK, I think, has had an increase in unionization. Mm. Um, but, so, Belgium has been fairly steady in this, and there is, it's, I don't want to say it's a clientele relationship, because that would be, like, a gross reductionism mm. and it's not true i probably did a gross reductionism about the french i mean this is this too, is but. this is what people do to make their points yes, and i'm going to do it Reduce. over and over again yes. but <laughs> from this point i'm going to use that term as like a bad thing and later i'll just do the same thing but not <laughs> but anyway the the so but in belgium it was like uh, so when there was a large strike that I covered and a national mobilization in Brussels, it was about like a, some basically some European parliament policy to basically mm. put a cap on energy prices mm. where when France, like a lot of the strikes started happening over the pension issues, it was more of an opposition movement. Right. So Macron has sort of like been anti-union. So there was, no, even though the socialist party is not like in the, the, you know, completely in power in Belgium, they still, they still have an ear to, but, I mean, people have their ear to a certain extent. Are um, unions typically aligned with the Socialist Party? In some Belgium? of them are. I mean, this is a this is a this maybe is a, a a piece of contention. But I would say, to a certain extent, some people do have the ear of that. I mean, it seems like so. There's the mainstream sort of Socialist Party, and then there's there has been a growth of this kind of Labour Party, especially in Wallonia, um, and they're they're not like the Labour Party in the UK. Mm. So the Labour Party there uh, were you know far left um, and they have a different history um, and there's been a growth of that while there's also been a growth of far right parties including Vlaams Belong and Vlaams Belong is like a lot of people were members of, of the Vlaams Block which was which was banned you know it's for be, basically being so like for fascist, hate speech they're it's a fascist, fascist yeah, party, yeah, fascist wow. party. Okay. More, I like mean, more fascist than even the National Front in France yeah I, I mean like yeah. an unreconstructed National Front yeah I mean like for for example so Philip de Winter wrote a book on on race science you know like basically like trying to prove that, sci that science supported that some races are 
uh, you know, superior, inferior. You yeah. know, straight like up. Walloons, Walloons are inferior. And then, you know, <laughs> and, and then Leuven and Ghent and places like that, people have tried to disrupt his his talks because he cause, and he's they've and they've in a lot of ways taken votes away from the NVA, the NVA because of because uh, um, NVA has been in power for a long time. They haven't really delivered and. I don't know. I mean, but the thing about it, all these parties, these nationalist parties in, in Flanders is they're fucked up and they're like super corrupt. They kind yeah. of like, you know, the populist right always tries to like seize on this opportunity of like a legitimation crisis and, yeah. and like talks bad about the elites. But like, so the NVA, they were part of this, this, uh, this huge um, controversial like thing that happened where they were letting like 23 companies jump like chemicals in, in the, uh, the, uh, Schelde, oh, like, the, like the river, like outside of Antwerp. Oh, and they man. found out about it. Cause so, so Belgium, if you ever go there, there's constantly these construction projects, which are never ending. Like they never finish. Like Antwerp's been under construction. Dude, for that sounds like a paradise for me, man. Oh yeah. Maybe, on that, maybe, on that endless job. That's what a, a good working class gets. <laughs> yeah. Strong working class. But, Strong working class gets you a job that you start on and retire on. But there's the, but the, so like, you know, and Belgium has these things where you might just walk outside of your apartment one day and the street won't be there and there'll be like a narrow, like, uh, you know, thing like Indiana Jones style, like walk of faith to get to like, <laughs> you know, the other, to get to the other side of the, this thing. And it just appears out of nowhere. I have to imagine that this is partly like due to the corruption that you're pointing to, but also because... Yeah. Belgium was just disorganized. But Belgium has Brussels, right? So they must be getting a bunch of like EU money for development and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, it's just a mess. But the so anyway, going back to the NVA. So that what what actually happened was they, um, I think they were doing some highway construction and it tested the soil, and then they 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 found that these um, what what PCBs like like the like the oh, highest nasty shit. like the highest levels in Europe. And they were telling people like uh, if you have like a farm don't eat your chickens eggs like the Ooh. water and it and it was like a uh, 3M um a lot of like multinational con- countries were I mean companies multinational yeah. companies were just dumping shit right in and paying off like government officials and so this like biggest that, party like so that. like as bad corruption as like you'd see in southern italy but this is like the heart of the european project well it's kind of like 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 belgium's like a peripheral country right in the middle of europe okay it's yeah. it's in a weird way like it's like you know it it, it it's completely uh dysfunctional and, and you know in the, in the past elections you've had uh wallonia vote kind of more to the left and uh-huh. then you know and then flanders has went to the right and then they just can't form a government for like okay. you know, like two years, they, they actually beat a rock for the longest time with like a federal government in modern times. Well, congratulations to Belgium. <laughs> well, the weird thing is, like, so when they're, you know, they're when becoming you, more anarchist by the day. If you don't have a government for long enough, you just like it's really you abolish it's really the bad, state though, in slow yeah. motion. I mean, like, like autonomy in Belgium would mean like I would I would I would be, it would be awful if like Flanders split off because I live there, so it would be like the far right would be in power. Oh man, yeah. So it'd be kind of like, you know, if the Southern states is seceded, you know, right. like it wouldn't, it, you know, it wouldn't be like a, a good thing. And I mean, this goes back to this sort of like uh, self presupposition of capital, you know, like they're, you know, like if you, people go in, pe- these people are representing the, the ruling classes. And like when the, you know, just the NVA is just like an example of it. They have these sort of nationalist, you know, populist things, but they represent a specific part of like the, the ruling class. Okay, interesting. Because the 
the Flemish ruling class would be more like Flanders now. Flanders, so Flanders now is one of the richest areas in all Western Europe, and it's mostly finance, right? Yeah, there's and finance. Like there's also services. there's also there's also still industry. So there, like 3M and like there's actually big companies still there, like chemical manufacturing. Yeah, but then yeah, isn't yeah, Walloon, yeah. Uh, Wallonia more like? Heavy industry like steel and things. Yeah, like that. yeah, so and a lot of that's kind of like been declined. So Wallonia. So a long time ago, um, the the fuel and the origins of say like the Flemish nationalist movement actually was left at one point, hmm. and it was actually Wallonia. You know, there's all these like old castles and stuff there, and actually all the universities used to be in French. So a lot of the sort of Flemish speakers felt like uh, underrepresented, and it was like actually there was even like a May '68 sort of moment. Oh shit. And, uh, you know, and, and part, part of, like, the Flemish, like, nationalists who tried to align itself with, like, anti-imperialist groups. Okay, so, like, Quebecois, they're, like, yeah, white but, anti-imperialists. Yeah, but, but, then, but then there's this other troubling history. So, also, also the Flemish nationalists in World War II aligned themselves, part of them aligned themselves with Hitler. Oh, shit. So, you know, there was, so it's a very complicated history, but, yeah. it, but you know, when the, within all contexts they played into. It like, seems uh, like it's a very opportunistic nationalism. Like when Hitler's there, you're like yeah. a Hitler guy. And then when it's like, you know, the social democratic compromise of the post-war period, you're mm-hmm. like a left nationalist. And then in the age of neoliberalism, it's like a right populist sort of nationalism. Yeah, yeah. Almost as though nationalism isn't like a solution ultimately for the working class. Yeah, almost like that. <laughs> so, but I mean, like, but in the, anyway, in the current con- context, you've seen like all these different, uh, you, these things are happening on the, the national level, but also the the fact that the there was a huge amount of inflation and there was also the sort of cost of people, people's purchasing power was going down, especially when it came to energy mm-hmm. costs. So, and when I first started covering the stuff for the real news, it was about Belgium and this, this sort of cost of living thing. And then, of course, the pension issue like arises in France. Um, which I would argue also kind of ties in a little bit to the cost of living protests throughout Europe. I think a lot of people were worrying about the the sort of rollback of the pensions, um, pushing it up to a level which is basically it, it normalized with the rest of Europe. Um, you know, and of course, like some people in the European Parliament wanted to be like sixty-seven across the board. Right, right, right. Let's let's like zoom out for a second, mm-hmm. right? Because. Um, you were on the ground for the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes No, no, protests. I wasn't so much there for that. Okay, you weren't there for that. No. But the gilets jaunes protests already in, if I believe, 2017, right, are also a reflection of a cost of living crisis. It begins in the French countryside yeah. and carbon taxes being imposed upon uh, fossil fuels, where for the rural and exurban proletariat in France, this became like a... Uh, uh, an offense on top of already the expensive cost of living that they had where they did not want to bear the cost of like a green energy tax on their fuel that they used to like drive an hour to work or whatever. This was the sort of spark that, that ignites the yellow vest movement, which then becomes in the age of Macron, who we know is like a de Gaullist um, authoritarian, uh, uncharismatic and yet somehow popular among the ruling classes um, Gaullist neoliberal, banker. essentially banker, right? Mm-hmm. A little literal investment banker. He has had since the beginning of his reign um, pushback from various different social forces. So the yellow vests, um, you know, the personification of their enemy becomes Emmanuel Macron. And what we want to talk about today is the French situation more broadly, 
Um, and I suppose the European situation, as you understand and as you've mm. seen it, up to uh, the revolt of the Banglu, which we saw just what last month, right, with the murder of a uh, of an immigrant um, kid uh, who was driving his car, pulled over by French cops uh, in Nanterre and shot, leading to like nights and nights of direct attack on police, direct attacks on um, uh, symbols of the state and the infrastructure of the state through town halls and uh, basically a social explosion that we saw, which you were there for part of. I was was mainly there for the pension struggle. But I'd also had to contextualize all this stuff too within the stuff that I've been doing the last few years. And I think that falls into a larger, so two things, right? Two is basically the crisis of capital that really... Um, came to a head, it started really in the 1970s up to the present. And, you know, and there's been this sort of series of speculative investments, booms and busts that have happened. And we saw, um, we, wit- we witnessed the kind of thing that the, the revolts that happened like post 2008. Yeah. And, um, you know, but really, you know, say the f- past 40, 50 years, there's been, there's been more or less like a, um, uh, pushbacks, right? And and really, so France had like its own kind of unique, unique sort of situation. Mitterrand, like uh, in the ni- early 1980s, actually was the first person, was a person that actually lowered the retirement age to, to mm-hmm. 60. Because he's part of a, um, like a historic uh, unity government between yeah. the Communist Party of France and the Socialist Party, which was meant to push against the tide of like what was seen then as Thatcherism or Reaganism, yeah. uh, neoliberalism as we understand it right now, which ultimately fails because bond markets and the ruling class revolts against these reforms. But what's left out of the 1980s is this historically low pension retirement age for mm-hmm. the French people, which you were saying before the podcast, the French ruling class and political class or members of it anyways have been trying to chip away at for the last 40 years or so. And, you know, and, and some, sometimes with successes, sometimes with, uh, with failures. So, you know, like, uh, like there, w- there was multiple attempts to sort of roll back this. Hollande, like, actually failed. Sarkozy managed to sort of push stuff through. When that happened, there, were like a, there was about a month of pretty hardcore strikes. But he kind of pushed it through and just kind of didn't, you know, step down. But, it, you know, it's, it's always difficult to do that. But in Europe as a whole... We've seen like uh, the retirement age going up, yeah. and especially since 2008, um, there's been a wave of austerity throughout Europe. Yeah, and um, you know, and I covered a little bit of that. And the austerity, the the, the initial sort of like uh, results of this austerity were pretty high unemployment rates, um, especially youth unemployment. Yeah, especially in in, in peripheral countries, you know, uh, the pigs, you know, yeah. Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain which are all countries and also throughout Europe is another interesting thing is there's, you know, a lot of these countries, there's more people who are dying than, than being born. Right. Uh, replacement rate. So you, you've, you've had austerity that has, has occurred throughout Europe and it's, and it's sort of almost become normalized. Um, and so this, this, I think you can't really talk about France. You can talk about the specific things that have happened since like the 1980s. But you, I think it's important to look at it within both the European context, but also in a global context yeah. where there are these, you know, there's speculative capital and there's kind of a rollback of, uh, you know, I guess like uh, the social safety net, yeah, the safest term to use. Because we can talk about these things in political terms or in terms of the way in which 
the proletariat revolts as they have in France and elsewhere a lot over the last 15 years and many times in the last 40 or 50 years. But what fundamentally, like we understand, we're all kind of Brennerites in this respect, is that you've had like a slowdown of especially in manufacturing capital accumulation over the last 50 the, years. The real economy. The real, the real economy, let's yeah. call it, where neoliberalism, of course, is a political, a ruling class response to that. Austerity is a ruling class response to the actual like material slowdown of accumulation and, and a profit crisis, which has been managed in various means, but one of the ways politically it's been managed is by a slow chipping away of the, quote, social rights, you know, or social wage, let's say. And so, of so, and then, you know, and then weird innovations in, or what do you want to call them, production. You know, uh, innovations in production, and, and the moving of and production we, and we've elsewhere. Seen, and we see all, like, uh, you know, how this, these kind of, like, uh, not not being a Brenner, right? Like a sort of overconsumption crisis can, I mean, overproduction crisis mm. kind of occurred like within COVID and where, where you, or, or where you try to like prevent these kind of overproduction crises, like just in time production or like offshoring of, yeah. and how that can affect the supply chain. Right, right, right. Yeah. That, which goes a long way towards understanding the uh, inflation crisis. So, that we've so, all been so you have through. this thing. So that's one, one way to contextualize it. The other thing is, and I, I'm not, a Habermas person, like I'm not. You can a, be a Habermas person I'm, if you want to be. You can really. be whatever you want. Man. I can be whatever I want. You can believe I cherry, in like I cherry, dis, I cherry pick ideas, and especially you know ones. I cherry pick especially when I don't fully understand. Concepts. Oh, that's the I, best I read, way to I read, do I read it. legitimation, you know, the yeah. legitimation crisis book, but I do think to a certain extent, like really, um, especially post 2008, there was a little bit of like a, um, a sort of soft legitimation crisis. Um, that kind of occurred where people, there was this sort of like anti-elitism yeah. and uh, the, the right has kind of tried to fill that void. The, there's, been, there's been examples of left-wing populism, but not really being able to, uh, you know, overcome this cri crisis of capital. So then the, the sort of like the way it's emerged in France, right, uh, you know, as everybody like follows it, like it's Le Pen, you know, yeah. so people, people are afraid of Le Pen. So Macron gets pushed in, not necessarily because people like Macron, but they're, uh, they don't feel that the, for, they're afraid of the far right. Yeah. And they're, they're, and then the left doesn't get enough support. Right. Um, because so, the social basis for the left in the deindustrialization of the French economy leads to the, you know, historic disaggregation of working class communities, trade unions, and the Communist Party of France, which for better or worse was sort of like the political expression mm -hmm. of the working class, like in that Cold War period. This legitimation crisis, I think it's important you point out like a distinction you know, the two are obviously interrelated, like the crisis of capitalist production and the legitimation crisis of the state, which is not mm -hmm. unique to France, but it's actually across Europe. The response, as you said, has been a kind of rearguard rear action to try to save the vital center, the sort of um, the liberal center, which is um, attempting to like um, hold on against the far right and like chip away and do neoliberal reforms while at the same time trying to point past neoliberalism and try to do things like industrial policy. But importantly, too, I want to add this. Part of that legitimation crisis in France and elsewhere, too, has led to the strengthening of the repressive apparatus of the state. Because as more and more of these social rights are taken away, and you've seen this very remarkably in France over the last 20 years, so too does the apparatus of state repression have to increase. And so the French police now are not the French police of 15 or 20 years ago. You saw during the pension um, protests and strikes 
uh, the French police becoming almost as violent or maybe as violent as the American police on a certain level. So I think like, so when that's a response to the legitimation crisis. So I think the, so it's hard, like it's hard to really like every time I go to like any country whatsoever um, and I go to the protests, you know, I'm always, you know, struck by how the police are really bad. So it's hard for me to be like, oh, these police are worse than this. But I think in you, there's certain things that police do differently everywhere. And I think that the police, at least in Paris, uh, the way they react to um, demonstrations that may be a little militant or whatever um, is more extreme than other parts of Western Europe and probably the United States. Mm-hmm. This, now, I think like, like statistically, if you look at the amount of like, you know, African-American people who are killed is, you know, the disproportionality of the United States maybe exceeds that. Mm. But when you see these demos, you, you see, so what, so going back to this sort of legitimation crisis, and you are also tying the, the gilets jaunes or the yellow vest into the crisis of capital. Mm. Um, what happened with that movement and spe- specifically is there were some very aggressive, pretty crazy protests and people would reach would throw tear gas canisters back at the police. Sometimes they would reach down and it would be a concussion grenade or this other type of kind of exploding um, canisters that would maybe have this kind of powdery, um, like burning. I don't, it's kind of like a, it's almost like tear gas, some type of chemical irritant. irritant. I don't really know what it is. I'm not an expert on it, but the short version is people lost hands and also people lost eyes and the police were uh, exceedingly violent. And um, so this, the, the yellow vest, I think they, they appeared specifically, you know, about the, the sort of uh, these policies that were pushed through where at one point they were, people were encouraged to buy like diesel cars and all these things. And then they're saying, oh, we're going to ban them. There was no like, uh, um, there was no way for people to be able to like uh, afford like regular people to kind of like, you know, just avoid like driving or like, or to sell their cars or whatever. So yeah. that, that happened. But then I think, uh, increasingly people supported them because the police were so incredibly violent. Right. Now, so this this happened at these pension protests that I covered. So initially the pension protests that happened were about the retirement age. You had um, all the 12 largest unions in France all unifying for the first time in, you know, uh, at least a decade, maybe longer. Um, and these pretty widespread strikes, which were, you know, you do get kind of used to, like, in Europe. The, the French do have these very big strikes. They have uh, shutdowns of fuel refineries. They ha- they shut down transportation, you know, that. And, you know, it is interesting when it happens still, and especially within this big, broader context, I was saying, where there was a strike wave in Europe around the cost of living. And I think that the cost of living things did, I think that was also fueling people to go to the streets because people were upset about the, having to retire later and um but they were also like worried about the fact that they were also losing like purchasing power and just overall like the decline of unions within france like union union membership has been in decline for a while um and so but while union membership is in decline uh Unions do control some key sectors. So uh, the CGT, which is fairly militant, um, they control Air France, mm. uh, what are the fuel depots, fuel refineries, uh, trains, uh, lorries, like, or, or, you know, truckers. Yeah. Um, so while they're not, like, maybe the majority of people, they... they, they they're at choke points within the economy. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, so I think another, I think another thing that really did kind of, like, upset people... Um, 
was the garbage strikes. Mm. So, and, and also people shut down the incineration plants. Mm. So not only could they not take out the trash, but they couldn't burn it. So it stinks and it's a bad thing for like tourism. But in the con, when these things happen, um, the police were pretty heavily cracking down on these. And so I think like the one thing that you could kind of predict a little bit was what the unions were going to do. And, but in early on in these, I think the, the sort of black block, uh, slash ultras, you know, soccer hooligans or some cities, I think like more, um, people of color, um, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't just say immigrants because there's a lot of people that were born in France mm-hmm. that maybe their lineage was Moroccan or of Arab descent or from North Africa, but they, they're, they're French. Um, they participated more and more, especially when the protests, like I, I covered in, in France, um, I'm sorry, in Paris, I covered in Paris and when it moved more into, uh, peripheral or the banlieue, or the the sort of like the working class working suburbs. class suburbs, yeah. or even working class neighborhoods within Paris, because Paris is actually an interesting. I actually like it quite a bit because mm-hmm. there, it's not just this bougie place where you spend a bunch of money on a bottle of wine and some cheese. You can actually there's actually neighborhoods that are really working class. Yeah, you steal the wine and cheese. Yeah, you can also do that. <laughs> And I'm sure a lot of it got stolen at these. Yeah, sure. So especially, so towards the end of those, especially in where, what I was seeing in Paris was there became larger black blocks. It was a larger uh, youth contingent. Um, high schoolers started walking out. When it was pushed into working class neighborhoods, it became more multiracial. And this is so. This is the changing character of this. And I think this is really becoming around March. I think it yeah. was also the realization that Macron was not, even though it was very unpopular. Um, he was kind of like, oh, you know, I got elected. I'm going to push this thing through. He had to and do like a dictatorial parliamentary maneuver, right? Where basically like the, yeah. they voted against it, but he like overrid, overrode them using his presidential powers. So born, so the born like Macron government was, was just kind of ignoring it. And uh, so really around March, I think uh, people, the frustration grew up. The unions had to like heed to the population to a certain extent and there became something that was much more than the sort of like two-day national strikes that were happening or one or two-day ones. And some of these were, there were like two of them a week. Mm. And, you know, in, in Paris, there would be, you know, six, 600, 700,000 people. So they were very big. And those black black numbers started to swell. So you went up from, uh, you know, one to 400 people. This is just a guess to, I think like the last thing I covered in early March, which was right before, Macron used 49.3, the emergency sort of laws to push through the pension reforms. You started seeing like a thousand people. Mm. The police also started changing. So actually I, uh, I got ran over by the cops a few times oh, sure. with my stuff and basically was like kind of unarrested mm. um, or, or pulled or kind of not even unarrested, un, un, uh, I don't know, pulled, pulled from being beaten to death jesus christ or by the police or, or having you know been beaten pretty severely i, I have a there was t- a journalist that lost a testicle in one oh of my god the, a quick question so the way you're describing like the rolling nature of these anti-pension protests which go on for months for weeks and months as this sort of yeah. this unaccountable political process uh goes through mainly it, but, like from really from from january through march so it begins with the trade unions and they call their uh, workers out and they have a series of like one or two day stoppages. But then in response to Macron's failure to budge and also the uh, repressive police response, the 
pension protest movement grows and also becomes more militant. It reaches into different quarters and also in response to police tactics starts to like gen- more generalize the black bloc tactic well, as I a defensive so, thing. So I still, so I did notice like at a lot of the protests, there's still a lot of, there's still like, there's, there can be animosity between the unions and the black bloc. Sure. There, there's a, people like different unions sort of link arms and protect their contingent to protect it. But they also kind of like at one point I was got, was was at the receiving end of the police and tried to push myself in with a union contingent. And I wasn't let in. Really? Okay. And you know, and I mean, it was it was very chaotic, and uh, there was quite a bit of tear gas. But the one one thing that that ties us back to the 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 sort of yellow vest and also this overall thing you were talking about policing was the police were very 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 aggressive, and it was very po- very popular you know, chant, which has been a continuous thing from like student demonstrations to the black bloc to the yellow vest is, you know, everyone hates the police. And it's not like, you know, if, if somebody, if we did, you know, see one of these things in New York, it would be like, you know, people we know, like, chanting this maybe a few other ones but this was work. like the the was, organized working class doing this chant as well yeah but a lot of other people and uh and so it was it when the, when the stuff went through 49.3 like went through and then there were these kind of wild nights where it was i think it was mainly like the youth and um you know black block t- and ultras or people on the and it like from who weren't white they were like working class like you know, burning cars and doing stuff at night. Um, you know, I think that they, they were, there was a result that basically they, it was like an anti-Macron thing and it was an anti-police thing. Mm-hmm. So those things really, you know, people think of that, uh, the stuff happening and like going through the spring, but that the last really big manifestation of that would have been May Day. Mm. And May Day was, you know, one of the largest, uh, uh, you know, May Days in Paris in I think like a few decades. Mm. Um and, you know, and it was a huge black block and stuff like that. So then fast forward and then like uh, Nahil's like, uh, let me make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Nahil. Uh, Nile. I see it. I see it spelled Nile or with an H. Nile. Nahel. Nahel. So let's just say. So when Nahel was uh, killed, um, that I think has to be placed within the context of what was happening on the streets and the sort of uh, people kind of being frustrated with what they were experiencing with the police there and also uh, what had been affecting um, people who were of like Middle Eastern, North African descent throughout France. And 2017, there was actually a law pushed through which allowed police to shoot people if they drove through police roadblocks. And if people have seen the video, uh, he was just shot point blank. Yeah. Um, he was at a road. They, may, they said that he had avoided being stopped a few times, but he was just shot in the head and you know, and then crashed his car. And, uh, but I think right away, like there was, there was a, you know, really crazy protests and, uh, riots were about, I think like the first, first one was like, was it five to 10,000 cars were burned. Uh, and it was, and it was also like anything that was identified with the state was attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, government buildings that had already happened a little bit at the hell end of the pension, uh, movement, a few, few like, uh, kind of big things were being attacked. So that kind of, that sort of happened and it lasts for about a month. I really think that what brought to these things uh, to an end were, I think the main thing actually is that people kind of chill out in the summer and go on vacation in Europe. Yeah, they still have The other thing friends. was police, police, uh, police repression and uh, criminalization of sort of these type of things. I think the pension movement. Isn't it, isn't it also too that unlike the pension movement, which 
uh, takes on this sort of mass, maybe a negative character, like against Macron, against this pension bill, but like a mass character that the revolt after the killing of Nahil remains within the Banlu and within the immigrant or first and second generation immigrant, because you don't have, or at least in a, in a way that I've, I saw over here, like trade unionists like coming out and striking on behalf. Well, not of- only that, but uh, apparently the, the riots about now were mostly very young. So it was like very uh, black and middle Eastern and also very young. And, most of what I know is, you know, talking to a couple of people who were there and from this Crime Think article, unlike the pension strikes that we talked about in the spring, which had a bunch of interesting write-ups in like different leftist magazines, I haven't seen much writing about this at all, except for Crime Think and Ill Will. Yeah. And the Crime Think piece says that there was this sort of trajectory of different elements of society combining on these big revolts, like uh, peaking with the Gilets Jaunes, but also in the pension protests. But then these riots around now being murdered were mostly just uh, Bonlu youth mm. with very little collaboration from any other, from the working class or from the cores of the cities. It was I think, I think, very separated. I think mm. you're right and you're wrong. Or you, I don't think you're wrong. I think that, I think you are totally right. But the, I think there was, there's definitely like, you know, black block participation in a lot of this stuff. You know, but, what but it I, was youth. What this article says and what I've, I've heard is that it was it was so youth oriented mm-hmm. that black block people, especially like white black black people, were distrusted. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that it could be here, you know, if you if you show up to the black block to like the Kais and that Twitch riot in Union Square, <laughs> we're just trying to get some Xboxes or PlayStation. No, I mean, I mean, the thing, the thing though, I think what was interesting about these things, kind of like uh, this thing, kind of uh, this one thing happening. Really, up until May, there was another. There was another uh, national strike, I think, in in June. Um, was that these things just happen right after each other? And if they, you know, you could you could see maybe you could say maybe some of the youth participated in the earlier ones, and maybe this was mainly a, a different demographic of people. And if it if it is a different demographic of people, that that in some ways is even more interesting because that means that it shows the widespread frustration mm. at at the the elements of the French state. And when I mean elements of the French state, I mean both the, when you're looking at the federal government, the Macron and like uh, born government, but then on the, the, the face of that government being the police. But doesn't it also show that like um, these Banlu kids, these youth who are largely immigrant or children of immigrants end up fighting alone in this struggle because the state and I guess to a larger degree, French class society has been able to like bracket off the police brutality that happens, you know, to um, black and uh, Mina um, French people as like a racial issue, as opposed to like a class issue that actually it shows the incredible ability of, like, of the French ruling class to like separate de- different, different demographics of the working class in such a way that like the potential unity that might arise. For example, if Nahil is killed during the pension protests, you can imagine then like a, a, a unity uh, yeah, revolt I mean, that happens. I wonder but about it, the fragile unity of that too. I mean, the, the, it should be said too, the police union, unions did participate in the pension uh, reform. But then protests. the police nearly have a, yeah. they nearly go on a wildcat strike against Macron yeah. during the course of these riots. And it makes you wonder too about the larger sort of left-right political dynamics of this to, in that like Marine Le Pen, as I understand it, in her 
her party's backing away from its Euroscepticism, for example, especially since Brexit, because they all see for like British capital what that actually meant. <laughs> Brexit, think, but also, uh, but also like um, attempting to for the National Front to become or whatever they call themselves now to become the safeguarder of the social state. You know, they argue against Macron from the quote unquote left, or at least from like a welfareist position to say that like when we clamp down on immigration when we get rid of all these social scum that we'll actually be able to defend our pensions we'll be able to defend the french welfare state if only we could get rid of these immigrants so like that's a way that it seems like bourgeois politics in france has been able to disintegrate what could have been potentially like a united front between this like anti-state attack uh by the youth on the one hand and then like a kind of pro-welfareist defensive action on the part of trade unions. Yeah, I mean, it's really, bringing that up is actually interesting when the Bourne and Macron government said that they were, the, the reason they, they were going to raise the the ages so they could save the, the, the pension system. This was their argument over and over again, because right right now there's actually not a, like there's a, not a crisis. There's right? not a crisis. They're yeah. saying that there's going to be a budget problem like by 2030 or something like that. So they've, they've put them, he, he, they, Macron and, and Bourne, I need to like insert Bourne in there. Uh, we're saying that, yeah, we're trying to save it. I think like, you know, but I think overall, if like you look at this sort of, uh, what's interesting to me about France and what happened, because to me, you know, it's like, whatever. I mean, I mean, whatever, you know, great. The pension, pension reform. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, you know, and, and then there's these isolated, you know, the police everywhere are killing people and it's usually racialized. But what's interesting to me about France is it's kind of like one, it's the way to, each thing is the latest man, manifestation of something. It keeps kind of popping itself out up, you know, every few years, pretty continually. And, you know, when, and honestly, when I show up at these things, it's, I, I want to, I, I try to go there and get a political education, you mm-hmm. know, talk to people, hear, hear what they have to say. But I'm also looking for like, what, what is the, ca- two things, like what is the catalyst? What, what can like, what is what could be like a spark that could like push people into the streets and secondly like uh it's almost like a you know sports commentary on like what stuff works so like mm-hmm. cause economic damage and like where you know where it's not just because i think a lot of people they do like this kind of like they have this sort of uh this sort of politics where they kind of look at these things and analyze like what went wrong and i kind of look at them i'm like okay what what kind of was like like really pissed off the the you know, the powers it be like, in yeah, what, what, what possibility was there that pointed beyond the defensist nature of the pension protests? Like what are the weak points? No, no. Like what did, did anything arise within the course of this historical event that might have pointed beyond the sort of like negative, we don't want to work two more years before we die and towards something that offered maybe like a direction for working class self-organization and it doesn't seem like there was. It no, seems like, really. like this, like many other social protests, seem very um, antagonistic and seem yeah. very spectacular. But we can imagine in a different scenario or in a scenario that we would support maybe if we were French and we were in this struggle ourselves of like a call for and the creation of like independent 
you know, rank and file strike committees that were willing to take, to fight to take like two day strike protests and turn them into an indefinite strike or to create committees of the rank and file militants in order to actually start proposing something beyond like mere pensions, something like, I don't know, workers control or, or something like that. And it appears that this pension struggle, as spectacular as it may have been, is part of a series of, as you said, going back to 2008, these sort of anti-austerity struggles that end up fighting, often failing, sometimes winning, but often failing, and then producing nothing substantive in their wake, you know, with no ability to, like, move past, like, the preconditions on which they're struggling, which is a defense of, like, the social state, defense of the bourgeois state, let's just call it that, and also, like, the self-interested, um, you know, in self-interested interests of bourgeois trade unions, which the CGT, despite having militants, is it is one, right? It's defending itself against French capital, but it is itself presupposed by the existence of French capital and jobs. Well, I and mean, profits. I, I think like I think most of the, the you know people who are like workers are, are basically on the defensive, and it's it's also like it's I mean. You know, there's not like a real coherent like direction for this being really proposed by anybody. So I think like I think like these things are kind of going to keep manifesting themselves. Parts of the class are going to fight. You know, if, whether it be like people in the banlieue or like workers who you know are in public transit or whatever, until like it like until something else happens. I mean, there's a, there's a, I think there's a different. I think that people have to fight for like uh, reforms or they have to just to survive. Sure. But that's something that's, different. That's different from like yeah. the the from re- the revolution. A hundred percent, and that's what I'm. That's, and that's I mean, like, and, it's, and what what happened with with Nahil and the rest of it. I mean, that's that was that was actually really important in France, and I think for Europe, because I mean, one thing that I think is interesting, in my opinion, in some ways, when you're in Europe, actually, a lot of Europeans are kind of more racist than Americans. Like there was not really a co- like a really pan-European civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. There was there's not like the, there the, like casual racism is kind of like protected with free speech, you know, in Europe. Mm-hmm. We like, all know about how they celebrate Christmas in Holland. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's so I mean, yeah, I mean you know, when I have a kid, you know, we, I was terrified of Swartz um, in Belgium, I you know, in Flanders too. Um and now it's what you know, but the so the you've you've had this kind of like like people were wondering if that was going to be like the George Floyd rebellion in France. Um, and if that might spread beyond France. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, the George Floyd rebellion did spread into yeah. parts of Europe itself. It had an, it, a including small, Brussels. like an international quality to it too. Um, I guess like maybe the question I have that's not answerable by us and maybe won't be for some time now is that if indeed like the period of like punctuated equilibrium that was neoliberalism as like a regime of accumulation and also like a a political order, let's call it an international political order is on its way out and something new, something like post neoliberalism is coming in and people point to like Bidenomics um, as like a, as, as like the new way in which capital might restructure itself and by extension then restructure the class relation moving forward. We, when we see these pen, these rear guard spectacular pension struggles against austerity, these rear guard actions um, by declining trade unions in largely declining industries in places like Europe, which have been suffering deep stagnation for 30, 40, 50 years through the neoliberal period, like we should start thinking about and anticipating and maybe 
begin thinking about how we might participate in a working class fight back in politics that's adequate to a post neoliberal era, which hopefully we should we should hope all of us as communists has an offensive and a positive character to it that isn't merely falling back upon like defense of social rights one 30, 40, 50 years ago. And we'll know that neoliberalism is really over when we start to see struggles like that. Uh, and adding to that and what you were saying about how these uprisings aren't necessarily revolutions, in some ways they're just questions of mere survival. Um, Gabriel Winnett made a comment on The Dig recently where he called the last 10 years the endnotes decade. <laughs> okay. And I'm wondering at this point, you know, we're talking about your history of making these global uprisings, documentaries, and, and you're still doing it. Uh, maybe this is something we can talk about in a, a short bonus or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, do you feel like now these uprisings have reached the point where they're no longer, because it, it did seem 10 years ago that these things were pointing in some sort of international revolutionary direction, and now it seems somewhat routine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I actually, I'll be really honest, by the time Gezi happened, I was cynical. Like very so 2013, 2013, yeah. but already, cause I, I, you know, I, you know, it's, I'd had like over, over a decade of already being like the end notes decade ended before it began <laughs> the short 21st century. I mean, I, I sort of, I sort of thought that, um, I'd hope that these things would move beyond, um, their sort of national context. And I do think to a certain extent, the things that happened, the string of things that started say late 2010 um, and went through, say, let's just make a convenient endpoint of, of a Gezi or some of the things that happened around there, that they were building off, off each other. It was a kind of contagion. But at the same time, there was also this kind of soft nationalism. People could not get them out of their sort of national context. And people were... Uh, and that, and that, and you saw that with the emergence of political parties like Syriza or Podemos, like people still could not get out of the national character of them. And one thing that was kind of interesting, say, like the anti-globalization movement, and you were talking that this, you were saying this was kind of end of that. Mm. I remember when we, you know, we there were summit hoppers. I was kind of one of them. We the, the the issue with the summit hopping was you had this you had this group of people that were sort of internationalists, right? And they, but they didn't have like a, like a local base. They weren't, there was no, nothing was sedentary. It was a group of people moving around and then you would have local populations that would join in. Uh, But a lot of the key players of that and people were like saying, oh, you know, we need these localized things. And then that happened basically like the, you know, the era of like revolts from 2010 to whatever. I mean, whenever. But but yet that like international like summit hopping but then sort of nationalism like it it was it it dissolves itself at the exact point when like it would be necessary but people you know so it's like people didn't really see themselves as like they weren't they weren't like oh you know we're in it we're like in this international like we're you know we're we're fighting for a communist there was no like broader idea it was like still placed within local context and you know at at the at the bigger level it was like maybe it was anti-eu from like right. even lefty left wing, I mean, because you know there was, there was you know we think a lot about the sort of right wing populist uh, reaction to the European Union, but if you looked at Greece, you know there, there was sort of an anti EU nature of that because it was your European Union, the the Troika, you know, yeah, the yeah, yeah. European Central Bank, IMF, they were all involved in that, you know, but you know it, there was not this real revolutionary um, like internationalism. I don't yeah. think. I mean, because we never built it. Yeah, you know, or like it, that wasn't even on the horizon of so what I, people imagined could be built because we were still 
I think all the way up until recently, all the way through the period you're talking about of this cycle of struggles that's like these revolts that are kind of bouncing off one another all around the world. Um, nobody had on their horizon anything beyond the sort of like spontaneous horizontalism that still remained of like the summit hopping or of like the Occupy or the Arab Spring. Which has to be framed in the context it of was like see- social relations as they are now. You yeah. You're not going to have like this big happy meeting you know, in a, in a park where you're surrounded by police who are going to come in and kill you at any second we, with a bunch of people who've never, like... We thought social media <laughs> would do the trick, really, right? We thought, we thought like, you could uh, hashtag yourself into it or you could communicate your, your way into it. And that just crashed against the rocks of, like, a concerted fight back by international capital and by the ruling class. And part of that fight back by elements of the ruling class was this right-wing populist resurgence, which ends up taking up a lot of the garb of, you know, the the revolts that we saw and moving in a direction where the methodological nationalism that you're talking about is, like, re-enshrined in a very serious way. So it becomes about, like, defending what's French about in France, you know, as opposed to, like, defending the working class more broadly against the cuts of, you know, the EU or international capital. And if you want, you can talk about and the that's a failure too, of us. But, uh, there was also there was also a lot of the things that people are using to build these movements and not working against it and also fueled really the economic recovery that kind of happened post. So, I mean, it was a quantitative easing bubble at first. Mm. But you say, like, let's just take about the, the tech sort of fueled like uh, growth that happened post 2008. A lot of that was about the, the sort of monetization of data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, p- places like Facebook, people were using Facebook, you know, in Egypt, they use Facebook to like call, you know, for, you know, this event. The people demand the fall of the regime. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, a few years later, I think uh, must have been 2013 or 14, there were these uh, surround the the parliament things that happened that the kind of indignados by the, the, the Facebook hands over the data of all the people mm. who some of the ringleaders over to like the, the Spanish state. So then, so then, you know, there's, there's a surveillance apparatus, but then there's also this sort of uh, collect, you know, monetization of like p- people's online habits that basically mm-hmm. that, that, cause you know, like a lot of these uh, Google, Facebook, like the large tech players, they were, you know, they were at a loss of how to make profits. And then the, the way that they could make profits was data. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then, and then there, it becomes like this, uh, people trying to use like online stuff, they're under surveillance. And even, you know, even if you can use like, I don't want to, I'm not a super paranoid person, but. Um, it's fair to be a little paranoid. A little, I mean, days. you know, not everybody's like out to get you all the time, but if you, even if you use say something like Signal or something like that, people want privacy in general, but if you use like Signal or something like that, you can still see who's communicating to who, what time of the day. You can deduce uh, what they're talking about to up to like 75% accuracy based on metadata, meta just mm. basically like who they're talking to, when they're talking to. You can be like, oh, this, like, which we he's, know, he's, but he's writing this woman at which like 12 know, o'clock at night. He does it like so many times. He, there maybe, maybe he's having an affair. We like, don't talk like about it, but we know that that was the big NSA program that the Patriot Act brings into bear. Mm-hmm. And like, of course, that's exposed at a certain point in time, but nobody believes that that massive sweeping program is like gone away. In fact, we know that there's now five eyes, that it's actually become yeah. internationalized now and that there's like listening posts and all sorts of cryptology that's happening across the world right now. Like all of the stuff that we're talking about happens at the same time as a serious enclosure of 
to use liberal terms like the public sphere, which is to say the internet, that is the end of the indie media sort of era and the opening up of like the big data, you know, tech era, which we're in now, where like whatever sort of freedoms of, you know, communication and association existed on the internet in that previous period have now been replaced by a monopoly, essentially. But I, I think what happens with uh, these platforms is a little bit more, um, I don't know, horizontal in the sense that, yeah, of course, you're going to have government surveillance. I don't think anyone ever doubted that that was, mm. I don't think everyone ever thought they were logging into Facebook and the government could never know about that. I think what happens is as the decade becomes super politicized in the middle of the decade, and I especially saw this around the 2016 election Trump yeah. is you start to say like okay so Trump's a fascist and I'm finding all these Facebook accounts and groups of people who support Trump or who are like part of the alt-right and so there's this, a lot of doxing going on going back and forth and there's a lot of uh, you know arguments and screenshotting and stuff and I think this is where you get this moment on social media where people are very worried about like moderation and cancel cultures and like yeah. why isn't Jack banning these accounts but banning these accounts? And the result of that is like Elon Musk buying right. buying it, yeah. uh, buying Twitter, or it's it's uh, Zuckerberg like clamping down on free speech yep. and like really you know, banning tons of political Facebook groups. These platform, like Instagram platform, trying to be really apolitical and that sort of thing, because on one hand, you social media can let you do flash mobs. On the other hand, it can let you have sort of de facto political summits in circles or in Facebook groups or whatever. Yeah. Um, but when the two go together, it doesn't work because people can't really speak freely on these platforms. And then when they try to do it in real life in like an Occupy camp and take the square or something like that, yeah, again, like you're talking about, you're just surrounded by police. So I don't think we've even found the right format yet to have a more serious political council. The cool thing, though, is these things still keep happening. I mean, so going back to how I was cynical and with Gezi, and what I was cynical was is exactly specifically what this protest would do. Like we saw a lot of the same stuff that we'd seen um, you know, with Occupy and everything where, you know, people come together, there's these sort of kind of democratic assemblies. It, you know, it was a little bit, I think it was a little bit on, on steroids because, you know, Occupy Oakland did not uh, kick the police out of downtown Oakland. And to a certain extent, Gezi, they people did that. Charcy, uh, Charcy joined by the rest of like Besiktas fans in Galatasaray and these other kind of football hoods pushed the police out. They negotiated, they actually negotiated for the police to leave. They fall. Okay. They, yeah. but it, was like, it was like an autonomous zone for a few yeah, days and or and something. It was cool. And yeah. it was like 70 cities in Turkey. There were these, these things. But what I was, what I, what I, when, when it happened, um, I came in the night that people were pushed out and, um, I was like, oh, this this is cool, you know. There's like all these big barricades and people are, and this is kind of free zone. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more, excellent bonus content you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the antifada it's cheap there's a ton of content and it would mean everything to us so thank you and we'll see you behind the paywall